Here we go. I titled this section, The Son of Man, Son of God, because we're going to be looking at uh, the distinction between um, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, and that is all wrapped into, as we've been talking about in this opening section, the gospel of God. And so when Paul presents the gospel, again, realize that he's writing to people who have not read the New Testament because it hasn't been written. Most of them have not read the Old Testament because they're not Jewish. So these people are going to get a letter from Paul that's addressing things that they have no background on except what Paul is saying, and he knows that. And so in his presentation, he's going to reveal to them things that they need to understand. Now, the book of Romans doesn't teach the fullness of everything. But it's important to remember that, like I said, they have not read a gospel. At the time that Paul wrote this, none of the gospels had been written. So they haven't read the complete life and story of Jesus. Yet when you go back to chapter 16, at the end of the book, Paul addresses a number of people who are in the church. And many of them have been his fellow ministers. So they've heard Paul teach. They themselves have learned things. None of the 12 apostles had been to this region. Peter had not been to Rome at this point. But People have been going there with this message since the day of Pentecost. We talked about that in our last session. And how from the day of Pentecost, the church at Rome began because people were in Jerusalem and then they went home and they carried this message. But how much did they know? It's like you got saved at a Billy Graham meeting. You really didn't have any background in the Bible you got saved there, you went home, all you had was the message that Billy Graham preached. And usually they gave you a Bible. And where do you start? I remember when I was, I don't know, I was about 12, 13, I think it was my, my catechism confirmation. My dad gave me a Bible and I looked at this Bible and I thought, what do I do with it? Where do I start? What do I read? How many have felt that same? You know, what do, I, what do I do? I got a Bible, but I don't know what to do about it. So I read the book of Revelation. <laughs> Thought, you know, every other book, you read the end of the book, you get the, the gist of the story. Boy, was I confused. <laughs> so, and some of you who went through my Revelation class say, you're still confused. But anyway... <laughs> So Paul is writing this, this, and he wants to not just introduce himself, but introduce the message that he preaches, the gospel of God. And that's how he titles it in verse 1. So on the front page, again, I took the first verse, uh, actually the first six verses, and broke them down into somewhat of an outline so that it's you can see what connects to what and what two things um, 
points that are made as he runs through this. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's the phrase we're going to start with, for the gospel of God. Which he promised beforehand. So God promised this gospel in the Old Testament, in the Holy Scriptures, and it's concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So there's the humanity of Christ. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So there's the deity of Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, his humanity and his deity, the Son of God, Son of Man. So Paul says that this, this gospel he's presenting is not new. The gospel was in the Old Testament. It has been declared from the time of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at that here in just a couple minutes on the next page. It, so it says, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Literally, it's set apart unto the gospel of God. This is, this is why I was set apart, so that I could declare the gospel of God. It's like Paul said, I was, I was consecrated to this. I was dedicated to this. This is the mission that God gave me from the beginning. And so he even mentioned, as we talked about it in our last session, that he was set apart from his mother's womb, separated, even when he was still in the womb. And then there came a time and he was separated. Why did Paul go to rabbinical school? Why did Paul feel as he was growing that he needed to go beyond rabbinical school, to go study under Gamaliel and become one of the one of the high levels of rabbinical teachers? Why did he feel that he had to, to fulfill this work where he went for his, uh, his apprenticeship? We don't know. I believe it was Damascus. So then he came back to Jerusalem, and there's this horrible thing happening called Christianity. It's like, what are you doing to my Judaism? But all of that preparation had a reason. Paul knew the Old Testament like nobody knew the Old Testament. And so God was going to use that for him to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, with his zeal, began persecuting Christians and then finally found out that there were a bunch of Christians growing in the city of Damascus, which, again, I believe was dear to his heart. And so he said, I got to go there, I got to drag those Christians back to Jerusalem and have them tried, put in jail, even put to death. That would make me happy, Paul's thinking. But God had another plan. But God's plan did not do away with all of Paul's preparation. God used it. And God used what had been happening in his life. And so God use this. And so Paul says, I was set apart unto the gospel of God. This is the whole purpose of his separation. The whole purpose of his apostleship. The whole purpose of his ministry is to proclaim the gospel of God. Now, I put down there in a little note at the bottom, there is a degree to which we are also dedicated to this gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
bottom of your first page. It says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, the Greek language is, is specific because the ending and beginnings of word declare what that word is. It just so happens that the word, the Greek word used here for do the work of an evangelist can also be the same form that's used as an adverb. Do the work of an evangelist or, as I put there in your notes, do your work evangelistically. So whatever you do, do it toward the gospel. The word evangelist means one who proclaims the good news. To proclaim the good news. It's just the verb form. And so here Paul is saying, Timothy and any of us, whatever you do, do it with the gospel in mind. Think about how you're living your life. Think about how you want to witness to people. Think about how you want to study what you want to do with your life, how you want to spend your time. Do it with the gospel in mind. Isn't that a great set of mind for us to have? Do it with the gospel in mind. And when you do, then, yeah, you may endure some suffering. But make sure you're sober-minded, stable, balanced, so that the pressure doesn't drive you one way or you don't change your message to get out of the pressure or to appease people. We've got to proclaim a gospel that is the truth. Not what people want to hear, but what is the truth. And it just so happens that the gospel is inherently offensive. It just is. Because the good news demands that you need it. You need it. Now, I can turn on CNN, Fox, Newsmax, ABC. I can turn any of those on. I can turn any of them off because I don't need that. But the good news that comes from God, <laughs> yeah, I need that. I need that. But there are a lot of people that don't think they do. And so they're offended when we tell them they need the gospel. And we'll talk more about that as we go through so, go to the top of your next page. And this gospel, I've been separated unto, dedicated to this gospel, which God promised beforehand. So, the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scripture. So, who promised it? Who promised it? God promised it. Not man, God promised it. And God always what? He keeps his promises. <laughs> If God promised it, he will do it. Not necessarily in your time. Timing, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> not when you want. Sometimes not the way you want. But if God promised it, he will do it. Because God is faithful. And so in his faithfulness, God made promises. And I love this first verse. It comes from Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul, again, in writing in his introduction, says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 
this eternal life God promised before time began. That's a long time ago. And what else does Paul throw in there? He doesn't have to. God, if, if we say God promised, do I have to say and he never lies? No, but it adds to the, to the veracity of the message, the emphasis. God, who never lies, promised before the ages or literally before time began. So before God ever created anything, he made a plan for us to be redeemed. That is mind-blowing. And so our minds just wear out, and so we just move on, right? It's like, okay, that's way beyond me. Um, I don't understand. It's, it's like me trying to understand. I don't want to offend anyone, but trying to understand the matrix. I don't get it. I've got people who actually think uh, that I, I need to be punished, put in prison, because I don't understand the matrix. I have... Watched it, it made my head hurt. Right? And it's just, I don't, I don't get it. I, people have tried, you got to understand it. It's, I, I'm done. I'm done. Right? So, that's what happens when we try to think of before the ages began, before time began. God made a plan. There was no man, there was no sin, but God had a plan. It was just waiting for the time for Him to reveal it. So, we go back uh, to Isaiah 40. So God promised this message before time again. And then we come across Isaiah 40. Now Isaiah 40 was written, given by Isaiah, about 700 years before Christ. All right, so we're talking again, something way before Christ was revealed. So Isaiah says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of what? Good news news or the gospel. So here's the Old Testament telling us that there's going to be a gospel. Good news. Now, I think I've talked about this before, but the word gospel, good news, it becomes tied to Christianity. But that's not the way it was used. It was... Emperors used good news. City officials used good news. And so the good news might be, and if I use this illustration before, forgive me, but good news might be, hey, um, the emperor wants to bless everybody. Uh, I know you don't have enough food and grain. I know there's no bread for people. I know that many people are starving and in the streets. I know that there is cold coming and we don't know what to do to house you. We know that many of you will probably die from this. There's the emperor giving his delivery, probably reading it from a teleprompter. (laughs) And he's up there, and and then he says, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a full month, 30 days of gladiatorial combat. Blood will be flowing People will be dying. Animals will be dying. Blood like you've never seen. That's what I'm going to do. That's my good news. 
And you know what? It appeased the people. It's just, if we, we don't have any bread, but if we can just get in and see people die in the arena. Later on, some of those who died were what? Christians. So that's how they use good news. God has another way. God said, no, I've got, I got some good news. Here's my good news. Listen to the good news. Go up on the high mountain of Zion, herald of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength. In other words, do this loud. Jerusalem, herald of the gospel. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. The good news God's coming. God is coming. This is not just about end times. This is God saying, I am going to reveal myself. And then later in Isaiah, God gives him this to say. Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings, what? The gospel, good news. Who publishes peace. So this gospel, behold your God, brings peace. Who brings the gospel of, what's that next word? Happiness. How many could use a big dose of Happiness. Yeah. Who publishes salvation, wholeness, fullness, restoration, prosperity, release, everything returned, everything that you need. Who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what? Your God reigns. Not only is he here, he reigns. He is over all of this. I know. You look out there, you see destruction. You see threats. You see war. You see famine. You see pestilence. You see all this going on. Listen, God's coming. And he brings what? Peace. And happiness. Why? Because he reigns. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't reign. Cyrus doesn't reign. The rulers of this nation, this world don't reign. Caesar doesn't reign. Our presidents, premiers, government officials around the world, they don't reign. God reigns. That, my friends, is the gospel. From the Old Testament. Now, we've said nothing about Jesus yet. But we're going to. Because the behold your God and your God reigns has everything to do with Jesus. This good news is going to be wrapped up in a baby who will ultimately deliver the world 
from their sin. This, this is the good news. So Mark picks this up. So when Mark writes his gospel, which was the first gospel to be published. So when Mark writes his gospel, many believe it was sermons of Peter. That Mark wrote his gospel listening to Peter preach. So Mark starts out, Mark, the beginning of the gospel. Well, wait a minute. It began 700 years ago. God proclaimed the gospel 700 years ago. Yes, but this is the beginning, the initiation, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Here he is. Jesus, humanity, Son of God, deity, Messiah, both of those together. The Messiah had to be man and he had to be God. He was the Son of man. He was the Son of God. And so this is who the Messiah was. The Christ in Greek. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. As it was written in Isaiah. So where does Mark go immediately? Back to the Old Testament. To give us another passage. When God said, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. God speaking to the Messiah, saying, I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who was the messenger? John the Baptist. He and he will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. God said, behold your God. Your God reigns. He's going to do this. Did Herod like it? No. Caesar like it? No. Rulers of this world like it? No. Religious people like it? No. Atheists? Agnostics? Pagans? Did they like it? No. But God reigns. He reveals his son. And says, this is the way. And this is the only way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 through 7. I've used this many times, and so if I've said this already before, forgive me. Um, This is my favorite Christmas passage. Because this tells us what was going on in heaven as the Christ was coming into the world. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, because of that, when Christ came into the world, he said. So, as Christ is coming into the world, being birthed by Mary, as Christ is coming into the world, he said, this is a voice that if you'd have been in heaven, you'd have heard. But on earth, they didn't hear anything but the whimpering of a baby. What did he say? Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Why? Because that's just the blood of animals. 
It didn't do anything except point to me. It was about me. But a body you prepared for me. Where's that body? In Mary's womb. Yeah, a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. That isn't really what you wanted. Then I said, this isn't, this isn't God saying, hey, you, son of God, you got to go down there. You got to suffer. You have to do it. This isn't God appointing Jesus. This is Jesus stepping forward. <laughs> then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is, this is what I want. What the Father wants, the Son wants. And the Son was willing to take this by his own initiative and come into this world. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. And you can find these prophecies about this incarnation, the Son of God becoming man, taking on human flesh. You can find it in the law. You can find it in the wisdom literature, the Psalms, Proverbs. You can find it in the prophets. You can find stories that relate to it in the history books. So it's all through the scroll of the book. I don't know about you. I would love to hear Paul preach from the Old Testament. I just would love it. All right? And so what does it say? So this is what God promised beforehand. Now look down about the bottom of the third. And what God said was concerning his son. So these things that God said in the Old Testament had to do with his son. They were about his son. Yes, he was Mary's son. But he wasn't. He was, but he wasn't. He's man, fully man, but not like us. Why? Uh, is he also fully God? <laughs> but there is another distinction. Jesus was like man. He took on human flesh and was made in the likeness. Notice this phrase from Paul. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because, see, we are all born, born with what? Sinful flesh. He was made in the likeness. The Greek word means similarity. Like but not exact. And so when it came to his deity, he was exact. Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. But when it came to his humanity, he was like us, but he wasn't. He's Mary's son, but he's not. Because he didn't have the sinful flesh that we have. He was born so that he could take upon himself the sin of mankind. 
Because the picture that God had given from all those Old Testament sacrifices, some of you went through the book of Leviticus with me, and um, there's a lot of blood shed, but you know what was it all about? The sacrifice, a sinless substitute for your sin. Something that was pure. And so you took an animal that had no infirmities, no sickness, no disease. You took an animal that was pure and then you would sacrifice it. Because that represented something. All the other animals were unclean. This one is not. So they examined these. I've shared before, but on the Passover, you know what you did with your lamb? You took your lamb into your house on the 10th day of Nisan. That's the month, not the car. Right, so the 10th day of Nisan. You brought your lamb into your house. That's the day that we call Palm Sunday. And so you bring the lamb into your house and for four days you watch it so that you see how it eats and how it does other things. You see how it walks, how it sleeps. You observe it. You rub its body. Make sure that there's no broken bones, that there's no sores, no open wounds. This lamb is pure, spotless, innocent. And on the 15th or the 14th day in the evening, what do you do with this lamb? You kill it. Why? Because it represents the holy sacrifice that God demanded. But that lamb's blood wasn't enough because it was a lamb. And God needed a man. And so he sent one. So this gospel concerns his son. So it's God's proclamation from the Old Testament, but it's about the son that will be born. So what do we know about this son? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, the incarnation. God was manifested in the flesh. Paul says, there's mysteries, and Paul mentions numerous mysteries. And a mystery is, it's not like an Agatha Christie something, you know. It's, it's not a story like Perry Mason. A mystery was something that is true, you just don't know it until somebody tells you. And so you're waiting for someone to tell you, and the mystery of godliness is one of those. But what does Paul say? This mystery is great. And anybody who's tried to study out and, and have a full study of the incarnation, you're, you're again down the road where your mind is just going to freeze after a period of time. It just locks up. It's, it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. We can talk about it. We can look at, at examples of it. It's like trying to fully explain the Trinity. Everybody's got their little models and their little presentation and if you but they're they're all they all fail because they all fall apart somewhere somehow so also is this mystery so paul says this mystery is great god manifested in the flesh 
fully God, fully man, one person. I've got one book. It's about 300 pages called Jesus Christ, Our Lord. And all it's about is the incarnation. And there's pages, I just have to, okay, I read it, I know the words, I do not get what he's saying. All right, it's deep, okay. So why do you read that? I don't know, it was there. Okay, First Peter, listen to Peter. So not only does Paul say it in Timothy, he says it to Peter. First Peter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's his deity. He wasn't always a man. In eternity past, he was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was from the beginning. So that's his deity. But listen, he was foreknown in the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, that's his humanity, in the last times. For your sake. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God? God did what he said. God made his promise sure. It was foreknown and then it was manifest. And when was it manifested? Bottom of your page. Who was descended from David? So this is concerning the Son of God, the gospel, concerning his Son who was descended from David. What's that? His humanity. His humanity was descended from David. His deity wasn't. He created David. Right? He was before David, but now he's descended from David. Well, that's, again, your mind goes tilt. Who was descended from David according to the flesh or under the influence of the flesh. So he descended from David. This is his humanity that was born of the line of David. Now, both or two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, Give us this genealogy, but I just want to point out a couple things. No, we're not going to go through all of the names in the genealogy. But let me tell you, God put those names in there. And they're in there for a reason. And you can follow those names through. And you can find things about those names that reveal incredible insights. So don't skip the genealogies. But Matthew 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that's the incarnation, the God-man, Jesus, humanity, Christ, his deity, the son of David. Jesus is the son of David, who was the son of Abraham. And Jacob following the lion all the way down. So, Matthew starts with the son of David, then he goes to Abraham, and then he goes from all the way from Abraham down through. And then he comes to Jesus' time. So skip on down the next line, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. So, there was Jacob, 
who was the father of Joseph. And he was what? What's it say in your notes? The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So Matthew's not messed up. He knows that Jacob was, or Joseph was not the father. But he was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. This is Jesus' humanity, because deities aren't born. Who was born? Who is called Christ, Messiah, his deity? Now, the lineage in Matthew from Jesus back to David goes through Solomon. So if you follow the line back from Joseph to his father Jacob, and then back, 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 then pretty soon you get to all the kings and the kings that served in Judah, all the way you come to David, son Solomon. And so the line in Matthew follows through Solomon. And these are the ones whom David was told to choose Solomon. Solomon was God's choice. And so the line went through them, and the sons of Solomon sat upon the throne of Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. And that's what you get. And it ends up, from Solomon, it ends up with Joseph, who was God's choice to serve as the earthly father of Jesus. But now go to the top of your next page and we go to Luke. In Luke's genealogy, it's a little different. So Luke chapter 3 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, who was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So again, Luke's not confused. He knows the story. He was the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. No, go down bottom of page 2. Joseph is the son of Jacob. So Matthew says Jacob. Luke says Eli. And Eli, follow his line back, it comes to a man named Nathan, who was the son of David. Oh, we've got two different lines. You're following two different lines. One line sat upon the throne of Israel. The other line was hidden in obscurity. And that line, David, through his son Nathan, ends up with Mary. How does that happen? I thought it says Joseph. No. Follow my thinking. It's there in your notes. This is trace Joseph who became the son of Heli through marriage to Mary. You see, and please, I know that at least half of my class here are, are, are wonderful women, right? But women were of no value to the family until you got them married. And so the point was, you got a girl, you wanted a son. So what are you going to do? Marry her off and make her husband your son. And so that's what we see here. When Joseph married Mary, he became the son of Mary's father. 
And so therefore, Eli had a son. Yeah, I know. I got the daughter thing going too, but (laughs) the son is the important thing here. And so what does this show? This shows this line to Jesus that was hidden in obscurity. All of the devil's attention throughout the Old Testament was directed at the sons of David through Solomon. Assault after assault. Evil plan after evil plan. Tempting them, using them, beguiling them. Some were righteous because they fought for their righteousness. Others gave in to the ways of the world. And the temptations of Satan and the kingdom suffered. Back, back. Off in the valley were all the children, the descendants of Nathan. Who were one day going to give birth to a man named Eli. Who would have a daughter. Who would gain a son named Joseph. Through his daughter would come the Messiah. That's God. Only God can work those kind of things out. So then what do we find? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Matthew 1 20 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, humanity, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua. God saves. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 says, And behold, this is the word of the angel to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, humanity, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we've called the Son of the Most High. Oh, there's deity. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is the Messiah. In the messianic kingdom. So we we see this interplay. The Paul says the gospel is about the son who was promised and descended as a man through David, but also we're going to find his deity. So we have these other verses, Acts chapter 10. How God anointed Jesus, that's his humanity, with the Holy Spirit and power. God didn't anoint God. (laughs) When Jesus came into the earth, he set aside the privileges of his deity. He didn't give them up. He just set aside the expression of them, the use of them. The Bible says, Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself, denied himself, and took upon himself the form of a servant meaning he would only do the things his father gave him to do. But God anointed the man, Jesus, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. doesn't say he was God. Jesus didn't heal people because he was God. You pick up commentary after commentary. You listen to preacher after preacher, and the miracles of Jesus are attributed to the fact that he was God. He didn't do his miracles as God. He was God. 
But he'd set aside that privilege and he only did the things his father gave him to do as an obedient man, servant of his father. And anointed with the Spirit of God, he was ministering to those who are in need. Isaiah chapter 7 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, humanity, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, his deity. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For us, to us a child is born, humanity. To us a son is given. The child was born, but the son was given. That's his deity. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's referring to his deity. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all of those are references to his messianic authority. And of the increase of the government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is Jesus as the Messiah reigning over all of the earth, his millennial kingdom. Read the story. I'm not going to reference it now, but read the story in Luke chapter 2 where the angels appear and they say what? Behold, we bring you glad tidings of what? Great joy. Good news. Good news. A son is born, humanity. But find in there also the references to his deity. So he was declared to be the Son of God, revealed to be, or I mean the Son of Man, but he's also declared to be the Son of God, bottom of your page three. And it was declared in power. Now, this is something we got to, got to think through because I want you to read the rest of the passage and then we'll come back and pull it apart. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, According to the, the spirit of holiness, all right? So according to the spirit of holiness, his separation by his resurrection from the dead. So here we're talking about his deity. So this whole section has to do with what took place in Jesus' resurrection. Now, he was always the son of God. He'd been the Son of God from eternity past. In fact, there was no time he wasn't the Son of God. There was no time. He's always been. The Word was with God, always was God. But in his earthly life, things changed. He set aside those privileges. He lived as a man. He died as a man. And so that he could take the place of us, but then God raised him from the dead. In fact, I, don't, I didn't have time to go through all the passages that talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. But what you find is God the Father raised him from the dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. And he raised himself from the dead, from his deity. And so all three persons of the Godhead were involved in raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus the... Man, because Jesus, the God, never died. Everybody 
good with that. All right. So as God, he never died, but as man, he did. But it took the entire Trinity to raise him from the dead. And you can read this, but there was something that took place with his resurrection. Something about him. Yeah, there's something about us, Paul's going to reveal later, that it is, it is through his resurrection that we are made righteous or justified. But he's not talking about us here, he's talking about him. So go to the top of your page four, and by his resurrection, this is a reference to his deity because it was the deity of God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son of God that raised him from the dead. And the, the importance of the resurrection cannot be lessened. It cannot be taken away. Every passage in the New Testament where it gives you what we call, and I, I hate to use this phrase, but I will, where we find the formula for salvation, it includes believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you do not believe he was raised from the dead, you cannot be saved. His resurrection is absolutely vital. Because if he did not raise from the dead, then he is not God. It was a travesty of justice, the, the worst kind where one man suffered for the sins of many. And it's a horrible thing, but if that's all it ends in, people have suffered for others for millennia. Doesn't produce salvation, but his did. Why? Because something took place in his resurrection. And this is where we want to finish in this section, Paul says he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so what happened in his resurrection? Let's first look at the idea of the cross. The cross is not just the death of Jesus. If, if you think we talk about, well, we need to preach the cross. Well, if you're not preaching his death, resurrection, and ascension, you're not preaching the cross. Because the cross did not end with Jesus dead. The work of the cross was not completed till he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. That was the completion of the work. And so this is the whole picture that God wants us to understand. Listen to Genesis chapter 3. You know this, this account, Genesis 3. God speaking to Adam and Eve, but specifically to Eve. And the serpent, after the fall of the Lord God, said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, eternal division, eternal opposition, beyond what we would call hatred. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. Uh, technically, women don't have seed. Because the Greek word for seed is sperm. It's, this is the first proclamation of a virgin birth. He didn't say between your children, but your seed. And I, I know this is the NIV and they change it to offspring, but that's not the word. It's the word for seed. And listen to what God says. He, 
the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be a wound. And there's going to be suffering. And if you're bitten by a poisonous serpent, it's not just something that you can easily pass off. But he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So then we read in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus. Uh, Paul, Peter uses that phrase. You need, to, you need to study Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. Just, just go read Peter's sermons. They are so full of this Jesus. And I love the way he puts that out. This Jesus. This Jesus that you killed, by the way, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. For David did not ascend into heaven, David's still in the grave. But he himself said, David wrote in his psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, I capitalized all this, this is God the Father. God the Father said to my Lord, that's the Son of God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Something took place in the resurrection. Jesus was eternally the Son of God, but in his resurrection, he took a position of rulership in heaven where he sits upon a throne of authority that is beyond any authority of this earth. Now, he's always God, but now he's gained an authority by, could I say, combat, conquest, proven victory. That Jesus endured the suffering of death and was even opposed in his resurrection. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 tells us that he stripped off from himself those who were opposing him in his resurrection. And so... All of this Jesus did in bringing forth God's purpose in his plan. This Jesus God raised up. And there was a time when the Father then said to the Son, who'd always been the Son, but now has become the God-man in heaven. Jesus, listen to the, the, the Son of God, has been forever changed. In eternity past, it was Deity, but now in heaven, sitting upon the throne of God, next to God, is the God-man. Son of God, Son of Man. He is raised in a different manner than he was before he entered the earth. There is a man sitting on the throne in heaven. Only one man qualified, that being who? Jesus. And he's only there because he's also what? The Son of God. Acts chapter 13. This is Peter, or this is Paul. All right, Acts 2 is Peter, this is Paul. And we bring you the good news. Oh, here's the gospel. Let me bring you, let me deliver to you, Paul here is preaching to the church in Antioch. And he says, and we bring you the gospel that what God promised, here we are, back to the promise. 
The gospel is about the promise. What God promised to the fathers, Old Testament, what God said would be, has now happened. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. So God made the promise to them, but he fulfilled it in our day. How did he do it? What's that next phrase? By raising Jesus. Raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Wait, wait, what? what? Wasn't he always been the son of God? Wasn't he always the son of God? But here God declares, after Jesus' resurrection, you are my son. Today I have what? Begotten you. Whole different phrasing. Today I have begotten you. This is Jesus being born from the dead. Now there were many people in Jesus' ministry that were raised from the dead. You can even go back to the Old Testament. Even in the book of Acts there were people raised from the dead. But they all died again. Because they were just raised in physical life like what we almost might call resuscitated, right? So they were brought back to life, but just physical life. But here, Jesus becomes the firstborn from the dead. This is a phrase that is used in reference to Jesus. He is the firstborn from the dead. John 3.16, you all know it. God so loved the world, he gave his only, what? His only begotten son. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says that he is the first begotten. The only begotten became the first begotten. He was the only begotten in heaven. Then he came to earth, took on the form of man lived as a man, died as a man, and by the power of God was raised to new life and declared to be the first begotten from the dead. And you know what? Somewhere in that line are all of you. Because he was the first begotten and you're the million two hundred thousand and fifteenth. I don't know what, you know quadrillions how many people have been born again i don't know but they're all somewhere in the line but jesus is the what first born from the dead not just raised from the dead yes he was but it's a different way of raising jesus was raised from spiritual death to spiritual life i don't have time to get into that it's controversial but believe it But what we have here is Jesus was, he was first in time because he's the first one. He's first in position because he is at the head and everybody else is under him. Jesus is at the head. You don't go tell Jesus what to do. Right? He's the head. I want to get my assignments from him, not tell him my assignment. I don't know. Just follow me on that. 
He's first in time, he's first in position, but he's also first in power. God gave him a name. In his resurrection, God gave him a name. He always had a name. But God gave him a name in his resurrection that is above every name. Whether that name is in heaven or on the earth or where else? Or under the earth. And that every knee will bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. Every knee will bow. Some to conversion and new life. That's all of us. Some to eternal condemnation. That's those who won't receive, but they will bow. Why? Because he's first in power. First in time, first in position, first in power. So this is what God has promised, and this is all wrapped up in the gospel. It's what God promised, and it's what he did. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the work of Jesus Christ. Your plan fulfilled in him that you might have us in heaven. That we might become your sons and daughters. That as Jesus was born from the dead, we also had been born from death to life. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for these things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.